right, so at this time, I think uh, Mrs. Parham is taking kids fifth grade and under out the door to my right, and Miss Silva will be um, taking care of the nursery. So if you have need of any of those things, we have great, great staff who, are, who love your kids. And uh, they really love your kids. And uh, so we would ask that you would, uh, if you so desire, out the door to your right is the place to go. The rest of you, however, ought to be turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study in this, uh, in the Gospel, in this Gospel. So we, uh, we are going to uh, look a little bit more intently today. as Eileen makes her way to her classroom, or actually to her daddy. (laughs) So today we'll uh, we'll be looking early at the text of the Good Samaritan, and this is perhaps the... uh, one of the most familiar stories or parables in all of the Bible, even if you're not a Christian, you're probably somewhat familiar with at least the term, the Good Samaritan. You may not know where that term comes from, but you've probably at least heard that phrase. After all, hospitals are named after this story. Uh, There's Good Samaritan down in the valley. You may wonder, I wonder how it got that kind of name. You're going to learn today if you're not already familiar with it. But most of you are aware of that. But not only um, hospitals, I saw insurance companies are named after the Good Samaritan. Retirement communities are called Good Samaritan Retirement Community. RV clubs are called Good Samaritan uh, Vacation Clubs. And so this term is one that has been used in in a variety of different ways by um, those who might align themselves with what we might term progressive Christianity have certainly picked up this idea of the Good Samaritan and have used it to uh, bolster their cause that helping the poor is the gospel. That it is caring for the needy That is the gospel. If you want to share the gospel, it's not about that Jesus Christ died on a cross as a substitute for your sins. In fact, the idea of substitutionary atonement, especially the idea of blood atonement, is completely or oftentimes rejected. And this story, this parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus literally says this, he says, Do this and you will live. Be kind to your neighbor and you will live. They pick that up and will say that, see, it is about being kind to your neighbor. So our goal today then is to look at this very familiar passage of text and look at how it relates to other aspects of um, the Gospel of Luke and try to draw out Luke's original meaning so that we can um, apply it to our lives. So just by one of the first things we want to do is remind ourselves of the context, because after all, this is a parable, a story that was not uh, spoken in a vacuum. Jesus just didn't give this account with no background or without any context. But it, it actually, it furthers, I believe, 
the idea of discipleship. And we've been in this section in Luke that's really focusing on the idea of discipleship. The first part of Luke, we really focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And that section ended with this question, who do you say that I am? Which is probably one of the most important questions a person can ever answer. Who is Jesus Christ? And then after that, we begin, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? If we confess that Jesus is the Christ of God, then what does it mean to be his follower, a disciple? And so I, from chapter 9 all the way through here to, to, to this section, we see Jesus committing to us what it means to be a follower. And today we're going to be dealing with um, with this very significant aspect. And this account is not completely separated from what we just read before. It's easy to look at this and, and many, when you read commentaries and you read some of the, the writings that people have uh, uh, written about this, they almost divorce this account from the previous section. But I don't think that's wise. I, I, Luke doesn't give us a time frame of when this, when this event happened, but he certainly ties it to the previous event. And the previous event is one of the, the significant things that Jesus said is that these things, the things of the kingdom, have been hidden from the wise and the understanding, but they've been revealed to children. I think we're going to see some of that. The wise and understanding are not, don't grasp what Jesus is putting down here, but to the simple, to the child. The one who has no pretension or uh, claim upon the kingdom, who simply receives the kingdom as a child, these things have um, value and meaning. So that's where we've been. Let me give you a little bit of preview where I hope to go today. I'm going to focus on three things. And the, the three areas that I, that I hope to drive home today, first of all, is the authority and sufficiency of the word of God that the scriptures are our sole authority and they are sufficient. And you're thinking, well, I've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, but I don't recall ever seeing anything in there about the authority and the sufficiency of God. Well, it's there. I promise. The next thing we, I, I hope to drive home today is the necessity of grace and the purpose of God's law. I think this is really relevant for us today because we live in a day and age where so many Christians almost deny or reject or put God's law as kind of unnecessary. I'm here to tell you today that God's law serves a primary purpose in our lives. And I often hear, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And that may be true, but that does not mean the law has absolutely no function in the life of a believer today or in the life of, um, of the world. And so we want to look at the necessity of grace and the purpose of God's law. And the third thing I hope to, to drive home today is that theology and practice cannot be separated, that we must live out what we believe. Or let me be a little bit more precise. We do live out what we believe. And in this section, we're going to see a man who lives out, we're going to see a number of people who actually live out what they believe. Our, kind of our main protagonist in this um, event is a lawyer. And he lives out exactly what he believes. What I want us to do is make sure that um, we believe rightly about God and then not leave it there, but actually live out that right belief. So those are the three things that I hope to drive home today. And before we get there, let me just 
put forth a few preliminaries. I think these preliminaries are important for us to grasp the entirety of what's going on in, in this passage of text because, um, again, the parable is not just spoken um, in an... It's just not some isolated parable that is unrelated to anything else. There are events that precede uh, the telling of the parable and then there are some events that... Um, follow after the telling of the parable and we need to understand that what's going on uh, the events that are going on in order to grasp the parable and here's basically what's happening this very famous parable is sandwiched between a dialogue between Jesus and a lawyer it is it is this parable then that it fits in this in between this question and answer time. So Jesus is sitting around. I'll get into this in just a second. So Jesus is being asked questions. And in response, he both asks further questions and answers some questions. So it's really the series of questions and answers, this dialogue between a lawyer and Jesus that prompts the story. And the story then, or the parable, actually then... Um, helps answer the questions that the lawyer has been asking Jesus. Are you with me? You'll, well, so, so anyways, the way I've presented this in my outline, and you should have that outline. If not, it'll be up here. But the way it is, is basically there will be question one, and then there'll be you know, question two, and then an answer to question two, and an a- question three, and an answer to question three. But that's kind of how this text is outlined. I hope that's not too confusing for you. Um, I tried to simplify it as best as possible and yet at the same time not miss the dialogue that's going on. So, with that, let's read our text. Follow along with me as I read in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is the Word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. And this ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. So we begin with this this section where a lawyer 
is coming to Jesus and putting him to the test. And, and this all kind of revolves around this phrase, this idea of doing, do this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this lawyer comes, and by the way, uh, the, the lawyer here is not necessarily, he, he's an expert in God's law. He's an expert in the Old Testament. He's an expert in God's law. Hence, a lawyer. So he's not one who would defend you in front of a, of a judge or a jury, nor is he a, a prosecutor who would try to convict you. or any, Not like we think of a lawyer. He is a man who is an expert in God's law. He's a theologian. He's a Ph.D., if you will. He, he knows the Bible. He's an expert in God's Word. And so this lawyer comes and it says that he is to put Jesus to the test. And, and this idea of testing can be both positive and negative. Testing can be, in the Bible, can either be something that, that is done with a good intent or it can be done um, with an evil intent. And I would side with those who would say that the, the intent here is evil. And there, there are a number of reasons why. I won't go into them. But I would hold to the idea then that, that this is, uh, the intent is, is to stumble Christ or to draw out of him some error. After all, think about this. This is a lawyer, a well-trained PhD in theology. And he's got this uneducated rabbi who's causing quite a stir amongst the people. And so certainly this lawyer should be able to entrap this young rabbi to say something that isn't quite accurate and then twist and say, why should you listen to this rabbi? He obviously has no idea what he's talking about. Well, we all know that the lawyer is up against something much more than a young rabbi from Galilee. But it is an attempt to discover what do you believe, Jesus? Jesus, you're a rabbi. What is it you believe? I want to understand your theology. And so question number one, an important question, the question that is relevant to all of us and, and important to all of us, and it is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We would put it this way. What must I do to be saved? This is absolutely a crucial question in our lives. And this lawyer says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we're going to see that this is an important question to the New Testament authors. We see it in Matthew um, and the parallel account in, in Luke chapter 18, where the rich young ruler asked the exact same question. So, um, by the way, this message here is going to be very similar to the one we give when we get to Matthew 18, but that'll be a long time from now, so you'll probably have forgotten this one. So maybe I can just repeat it over again. But, but the question is very simple. What must I do to be saved? And by the way, the answers are, are about the same. But anyways, we're not talking about Matthew 18. But, but remember, in, in Acts, after Peter's great sermon, remember the question, what must we do? This is a, 
an important question, certainly at least in the days in which Jesus is teaching and preaching. This idea of what must I do to be saved is, is of critical importance because the, the New Testament authors seem to include it often in, in their writings. And, and while it's an important question, I, I have a feeling that it's not that important today. I really haven't been asked that question very often. What must I do to be saved? I get a lot of other questions. How can I have a good life? How can I, you know, have a better marriage? And, you know, how can I put up with my kids? All of these things. These are great questions. But I rarely get asked, Pastor, how how do I be saved? Consider this question and consider then how this question would be answered today. If you were to ask people, um, and, and maybe you do in your evangelism, when you're, when you're sharing the gospel with people, you might ask them, how, how do you get saved? How do you go to heaven? And you might ask that in a variety of different ways, and you're going to get um, a number of different answers on, on how one is saved. And, and, and I I'm sure there are a lot of categories, but, but I think I, I narrowed it down to there's probably three categories that people are going to answer this question. And the first one is that they are going to elevate themselves or they are going to elevate man and say, well, I'm a pretty good person. How do I get saved? Will I be a good person? In other words, I, I'm not bad. I'm pretty good. That's how you get saved. And, then, and because I'm a good person, I'm in good shape. The other way would be to demote God. Well, I know that I I make mistakes, but certainly God isn't so holy as to hold that against me. We're going to either exalt ourselves while I'm a good person, or we're going to bring down God and say, well, he certainly would never hold my errors against me. And the third way is just to deny God. Well, there is no God and there is no sin, and so I'm not a sinner. And so we have these, these three, I think today we would probably categorize that um, responses to the question, either that man is God or God is man or there is no God. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the first question. And it's an important one. And I hope if you're here today and you have really never contemplated that question, I hope today that you will think about that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? How can I stand before a holy God? And we'll we'll discuss a few. uh, We'll discuss a proper response to that question. So that's the question. Question number one. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You'll notice Jesus' response. He doesn't give him a direct answer, but rather he asks a a question. So, question number two. And this one comes from Jesus. The first question, how do I be saved? Jesus responds with a question. What does the law say? How do you read it? That's an amazing answer. Well, or amazing question or response or... How do I get saved? You're the expert in the law. You're the lawyer. Tell me, what does the law say? There's a couple of things here. Here, he, he now, so Jesus now directs the lawyer to God's word. What does the Bible say? That would be the way we would put it. How do I get saved? What does the Bible say? 
And he can say that to this lawyer because they have a shared source of authority. The lawyer is an expert in God's law. He holds to the truthfulness of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And so Jesus finds common ground with him and just says, well then, what does the law say? You're the expert. You'll notice where he does not go. He does not direct the man to oral tradition. And there was plenty of oral tradition. Um, The Mishnah was the oral tradition of the Jews, which was basically they took God's law and then they added some stuff to it. But he doesn't say, what does the Mishnah say? Or any of the other Jewish writings that were not scripture. What does God's word say? He does not, in other words, it is God's word that has the authority to answer this utterly important question. How am I saved? God's word will be our source of authority to answer that question. Ultimate, so the lesson here in this is that ultimate questions find their answer in God's word. That's our lesson. Ultimate questions find their answers in God's word. We, this church, teach and hold firmly to what we call sola scriptura, which is just a fancy way, and I think a Latin way of saying scripture alone. In other words, scripture is our sole infallible rule for life and faith and practice. So how do you get saved? What does the Bible say? That will be our answer. What does the Bible say? Not what is our tradition or what does some theologian say? Those things may all be valuable and perhaps we can glean something from them. But ultimately, the scripture is the source by which we will answer ultimate questions. It is our sole source source of authority for life, faith, and practice. And let me tell you and be very firm about this, that when a teacher, a church, or a denomination abandons sola scriptura, damnable heresies are the result. And you can find wherever there are cults, false religions, errant teaching, it all begins with an abandonment of sola scriptura. It is the first step. So we hold deeply and Firmly to this, I, I, I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and somebody was mentioning something about in biology that when a gene replicates itself, there's a little protein, all right, and I'm not a biologist or anything like that, so forgive my, my lack of education in this. But when a gene or when a cell, when a cell replicates itself, there is a little protein that you could call it a spell checker. 
and it goes in and checks the new, the new code to make sure it's okay. And it cleans up any errors. If that little protein gets off, the code isn't copied correctly. And you have a mutation. You have a deformity in the new cell. Scripture is our spell checker, if you will. Scripture is that protein that we can go back to and say, look, there is a problem here. This is off. And when we abandon that, we will end up with, def- with defective organisms. We will end up with defective beliefs and, and even damnable heresies. And at the risk of Well, forget that. But when we abandon Scripture, we end up with teachings like purgatory. And while I have some great Catholic friends and family, I'm sorry, purgatory says that Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient to cover your sins. That's a damnable heresy. That you, the sinner, after death, must somehow pay for your sin. It is a denial of the atoning work of Christ. I can put up with a a lot of variance in belief. We do not mess with the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is fully, completely, and utterly sufficient. I believe that because Scripture tells us so. You cannot purchase your salvation. Not here and not in the afterlife and nobody can pray you out. Nobody can baptize you into the third heaven. These things do not happen. I know that because I have looked at the spell checker and scripture is clear. You cannot earn your salvation. And so, Scripture alone can answer the question, what must I do to be saved? How do I inherit eternal life? And so Jesus recognizes this. He takes the lawyer to God's Word. Let me say this. If Scripture is God's Word, and it is, what arrogance is it to claim that our experience, our tradition, our wisdom is somehow equivalent to what the holy God who created all things has already spoken. The Bible tells us this, Sola Scriptura, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. God's words is pure. It is unalloyed. It has no mixture of error in it. It is pure. And somehow we're going to believe that some human tradition is going to be equal to that? Or some wisdom from a council is going to be equal to God's word? That is arrogant and it is outside of the realm of Scripture. And while we hold to traditions are great, teachings from other people are great, God has given us great traditions and teachers and all of these things, they just do not usurp the authority of God's word, the scripture. So the first thing we learn from this passage of text is that God 
God's word is sufficient to answer especially ultimate questions. God has revealed himself in scripture to reject his revelation is to reject the one who revealed it. God's word is the final authority on this matter. When we ask the question, how can I be saved? We would then respond with, what does the Bible say? So, with that, let's go to answer to question number two. The question two is, what does the Bible say? And here's the answer that the lawyer gives. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God completely and totally and love your neighbor. This is actually a combination of two Old Testament passages. We see this in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19.18. And Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And then we read in Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the, the lawyer knows God's law. And he, he understands that these two are kind of a summation, if you will, of all of the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus now responds or answers um, question number one. The first question is, what must I do to be saved? The answer, um, the lawyer has now um, responded. You need to love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, correct. You've answered correctly. Your theology is right. Good job. In fact, then he goes on and he says, do this and you will live. Are you hearing what Jesus is putting down? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus turns and says, good job, great answer. Now do it and you will have eternal life. Keep God's law perfectly and you will live. Make no error whatsoever in loving God with all of your being 24-7 from the day you're born till the day you die. And then make sure you love your neighbor as you love yourself from the day you're born to the day you die without any flaw or failure. There you are. You're the expert in God's law. You just told me what you need to do to be saved. I'm just telling you do it. Jesus has kind of turned the tables on this man, hasn't he? This guy, the PhD, thought he was going to, uh, to get Jesus and flip him around a little bit. It ain't working out so well. Not for uh, the lawyer. In other words, no violation of any part of God's law and you'll live. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Here's a great command. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we do so much to try, well, it can't really mean perfect, can't really mean flawless. It means mature. That's what... How about this? Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Well, it can't mean... No, it means that. That's what it means. You're going, that's impossible. Yes. Look at James chapter 2. Uh, ten, nine, oh, look, 
Galatians 3.10 and James 2.9 and 10. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. There it is. Look what James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The lawyer knows it. How do I get saved? Follow God's law perfectly. Yep, that's the right answer. Now do it. Come on, lawyer. Well, we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus ask this question? Why doesn't he respond with grace? Huh? This question is, is designed, or this answer is designed to bring the man to an end of himself. We'll see that when we get to the rich young ruler. It is to draw the man to the, the impossibility of God's law. To say, that's what it says. I can't do that. So is there any hope? At that point, grace comes in. But we never really, this guy never really quite gets to grace. The idea is, the purpose of God's law is to show God's perfection and our inability to meet that standard. The law then brings two responses, or maybe more, but I'm going to discuss two. The first response is the law drives us to Christ. What must I do to be saved? Be perfect. I can't do that. I need help. Yes, you need a Savior. Let me introduce him to you. His name is Jesus, and he kept the law perfectly, and he will impart his perfect righteousness to you, and he will take your sin. That's what the law does. That's its intent. The law is a wonderful, wonderful tool. Here's the other thing. It drives us to look for a loophole. And this is where the lawyer goes. And so we get to question three. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer seeks a loophole. And uh, does that zoom in a little bit? That didn't come out very good. So Calvin and Hobbes, he's uh, an exam. Explain Newton's first law of motion in your own words. He gets a great idea. Yaka, ub, mag, grug, baba, zinc, watten, gazork, chumble, puzz. I love loopholes. He explained it in his own words. He found a loophole. When we are confronted with the holiness and the high standard of God's law, we either come to Christ or we begin to find loopholes. And the the lawyer seeks a loophole. The lawyer realizes he's now on the defensive. He started out as the inquisitor and now he is the one who is having the screws tightened on him. And he seeks to be justified. He says, seeking to be justified. Notice this, he seeks to be justified. He is not seeking to be justified by God. He is seeking to be justified by finding a loophole. The plan now is to mire Jesus into some fruitless debate about words. Who is my neighbor? Let's define neighbor. What does it mean? Have you ever gotten into a a discussion with somebody and you can't even define terms and they will just deconstruct everything till there's no meaning left anymore? That's what the lawyer is trying to do. Jesus will have none of it. In other words, he's saying this. Who can I exclude? Who's my neighbor? The the question is, who do I not have to love as myself? There must be limits. That's the loophole. There must be limits. Somebody is out there that I don't have to love as myself. And so let's define that person and I'll love everybody else like myself and those others rabble. I'll, I'll exclude them. 
In other words, what he wants to do is he wants to ease God's law to accommodate his sin, to accommodate his ability. If we can then ease God's standard, then to accommodate my failures, my sin, then I can basically lower the standard of God's law that I can meet. Let's do that. So who do I not need to love? Here's, so that's what he's asking. Who can I exclude? And he would probably appeal to the scripture I just told you. Leviticus 19.8. 18, where... Oh, let me turn there. I don't think I put that one up on the screen. Can you go one forward? Maybe I did. Um, nope, I didn't. So Leviticus 19.18, which we've already read, but let's look at it again. It says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against, notice this, the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it would be very easy for the lawyer to say, Ah, this is just for my own people. So I'm only, to, my neighbor is a fellow Jew. That's great. Fellow Jews, I'll love them as myself. I think I found the loophole. What he fails to realize, again, he's a lawyer, he's not taken the totality and the entirety of God's word into consideration. Because when we go to Leviticus, um, just a few verses later, 1934, this is what God says, and the lawyer should know. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you should love your fellow Jew and you should love the stranger and the alien who is dwelling in your midst. And other, other passages of text deal with this. Leviticus 24, 22, Numbers 15, 15, and 16 deal with this. Let me ask you this. Are we guilty as Christians of this? Who is my neighbor? Well, I, you know, I certainly love people in my church and I'll probably extend that to other Christians. But what about people who aren't part of our church? What about people who aren't Christians? Do we love them? Or do we consider them our neighbor and extend God's mercy to them? Just a thought. So, I've said all of that to get us to the parable. Because that's the context in which the parable is presented. Are you, are you with? Do you see how important uh, setting the context? Because I think the parable is going to have, uh, is going to be mm, nuanced a little bit differently, perhaps, than we might think by setting it in the context. Because the lawyer desires to know who is not a neighbor. Who's not my neighbor? And then I'll just exclude that person. And Jesus is going to turn it around and basically say, don't ask the question, who's my neighbor? What you need to do is be a neighbor. Stop figuring out who is not your neighbor and you just be a neighbor. And so then he tells the parable. And so we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Um, it's a very simple parable, a very simple story. Um, many of you are familiar with it. And uh, so here we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this parable builds on a very familiar scene of the 17-mile journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it was known to be a place where um, robbers and thieves and bandits hung out. There were caves and there were all sorts of... Um, Steve, have you been on that, that road? I figured you had. I, I'm sure it's a little bit different, but I'm sure they explained that it was you know, a place of... Still, they, they 
Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. So this was a dangerous road. All right. In a 17 mile journey, you really needed to travel in a group. But this guy was traveling by himself and he gets robbed and beat up by a bunch of bandits. They take all of his stuff, take his clothes, beat him and leave him half dead. And the story then goes like this. Two of Judaism's finest examples encounter this man. The first man is is a priest. And so in Jewish hierarchy, he would be kind of the top dog. And a priest comes along. Certainly, if anybody's going to have be able to do something, a priest would do something, but he doesn't. So the next guy is a Levite. In the Jewish hierarchical um, religious hierarchy, he would kind of be the next guy in line. You know, so first you have a priest and then a Levite. Basically, he would have been a, a temple assistant. And so certainly, well, if the priest doesn't do it, certainly a Levite would do it. Well, he passes by. He doesn't have anything to do with the man. So in this structure, you would think that the next person would be like a Jewish lay leader. That's where it goes. But Jesus now sticks a little barb, a little hook in there. And the text is fascinating because it, it puts priority of place on the word Samaritan. A Samaritan. That just catches them off guard. I mean, you could go, you know, priest, Levite, lay person, or something like that. But priest, Levite, Samaritan. This gets some attention. But a Samaritan. Because you've got to understand, Samaritans were hated. They're a despised group of people. And it all goes back to... Um, 750 years earlier when the Assyrian Empire came in and sacked the, t- the town of Samaria and overthrew it. And what they did was the way that they kept control of their provinces was that they would deport people out of the region. So they would deport people out of Samaria and, and plant them in another region where they would intermingle with the the people of that country. And then they would bring foreigners in to, to Samaria and they would all intermingle and interbreed. And so these were not pure pure Jewish blood. They were defiled. And they were despised. So when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, and it's a bar because the Samaritan becomes the hero of the story. Remember, Jesus is telling this man this this parable to tell him how to be saved. Let me just make a few comments on the Samaritan and, and the neighborliness or the love that he shows. We should note a couple of things. First of all, love takes action. Love is a verb. It is much more than a feeling. Now, I know that we don't throw away all discernment, but love acts. When it sees the need, love acts. It it doesn't ask, are you a Christian? Do you go to my church? It doesn't ask about anything like that. Love acts. I see a need. So I'm going to act. Love may vary based on on the basis of need. In other words, the Samaritan doesn't come along and give the guy a gospel tract saying, man, when you get better, you should read this thing. Tell you how to be saved. He realizes this, this this man is not some un, 
person unwilling to work, his need is not based because he is rebelling against any of God's principles. He doesn't give him a lecture on being more careful. Don't you know this is a dangerous road? What are you doing traveling on this by yourself? It serves you right that this happened to you, man. I hope you get better soon. But that'll teach you next time don't travel this road by yourself. Get in a group and follow. What an idiot. Doesn't give the man a lecture. He just acts. And he binds up his wounds. And he puts them on his own animal. And he takes them into town. Let me add this. Love is costly. It's costly to this man financially, but it's also costly to him racially. Think about this. I put this picture, you probably can't see it, but this is a picture of, a, of an American Indian uh, ministering needs to a, a cowboy. I thought this was, was appropriate, because imagine this. So think back to your Western. I know we're, you know, I've got to be PC here or something like that. Somebody might hear this and get offended, but I, so I'll be my, do my best. Think back to a Western. Nice black and white John Wayne or something like that. And... And some Native American finds a cowboy with a couple of arrows in his back. And he binds up his wound, puts him on his horse, and rides into Dodge City. An Indian carrying a cowboy with arrows in his back into Dodge City do you think he faces great risk? Do you think they are going to think, oh, innocence until proven guilty? Oh, no. This is what the Samaritan does. He takes this man, probably a Jew, we're not told, but he takes this man and he risks. He doesn't care about his, his religious or his racial designation. None of those things matter. Love matters. Taking care of the man, even at great cost, financially and for my own personal well-being, I will take care of this man. And so love is costly. And so then we now, with that as our setting, Jesus then asks another question. We get to do this. We return now to our dialogue. All right? And Jesus asks question number four. And we won't spend much time here. It's a simple question. Which man is the neighbor? There it is. Well, so let's move to answer to question number four. The one who showed him mercy. And certainly um, most commentators are quick to point out that the lawyer cannot even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Just the one who showed him mercy. He is choosy about his neighbors. And now Jesus actually answers question number three. Question number three was, who is my neighbor? And the question, or the answer to question three is, do this. In other words, be a Samaritan. Be like a Samaritan. That's what I want you to do. Don't look to see who you can exclude. Do good to everybody when you have opportunity. That's what it means to love your neighbor. How, who's my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor as myself? Do, take every opportunity to do good to them when you have opportunity. Be the Samaritan. Can you imagine telling a Jewish lawyer to be a Samaritan? So let me summarize some of the things we've discussed and then I'll get to my conclusion. Both should be relatively brief. 
Summary. Love of God is manifested in loving others. And and I think the reason the text focuses on loving your neighbor and not loving God is because loving God is easily faked. You can say, well, I go to church and and I sing or I do all of these great things and I serve in the... You know, I do all of these great things and I pray and I read my Bible. But the way you express that love, the way you live out your life is not easily faked. It is evident pretty quickly where your love really is. And I think that's why this focuses on loving your neighbor because you can't really fake that or it's much more difficult. In other words, treatment of your neighbor reveals your love for God. Love God with all of your being. How do I know I'm loving God with all of my being. It should flow out of the way you live amongst your neighbors and friends and co-workers. Some might charge that Jesus is teaching salvation by works, and that is not at all what's going on here. It is not salvation by works. I know Jesus says, do this and you will live. He's bringing the man to a place where he cannot rely upon his works because he can't do the things that God has commanded. This man may have great great deeds. He may do great works. What he needs is a new heart because he hates people. He hates people who aren't like him. He hates people who who aren't, quote, his neighbor. And Jesus has said, it's time for you to be a good neighbor. And and here's the thing that I, I hope we get here at our church. This lawyer, I want you to understand his theology is absolutely correct. His theology is impeccable. Love God, love your neighbor. He has great theology. He just doesn't live it. At least he's got the head knowledge. He knows the right answers to the questions. But I don't know that he truly knows God. Because God had mercy on him. His heart is hard. So let me just make an admonition to the folks here at the church on Randall Place. Because we place a great emphasis and have a high regard for theology. It's important to us here that we would have an accurate understanding of God's word. And I think that's really, really important. But please, let us not be the type of church that thinks by learning good theology is the end. All right? It's not the end. Theology means, you know, knowledge of God or the science of God or a word about God. We learn theology to learn about God. But if all we do is end up learning about him and having a cognitive grasp of theological truths, and that's as far as it goes, man, we've missed it. And in a church that values theology, I just want to make sure that we don't fall into that error because our understanding of God should then result in praise of God. Because how can you study about God and not give praise to Him? But then that's still not the end. Because our understanding about God should then impact the way we live out our lives. How are we as employers and employees? How are we as husbands and wives and children and grandchildren and grandparents? How do we live this this out in our in our coworkers? How do we treat the people in in line at Walmart and the cashiers and the servers that we're going to go have lunch in a little bit and people how do we are we neighbors because if it's up here and that's it in our heads 
We've not gone far. We're, we're no different than this lawyer who knows the right answers but lives like a son of hell and hates his neighbor. So I just put that out there as an admonition to this church because we do some of the things that we value and hold in high regard can easily lead us to a place of cold intellectualism and I don't want to be there. But we can't love properly God properly if we don't know who God is. Hence theology. So I just put that out as a, a not a warning, but just as, as a loving reminder of what we do. We love God. And that love will then express itself to our neighbors. Are we good on that? Bottom line is loving God is the gold. Grasping what is... Re- we do so by grasping what is revealed. So loving God is the goal, but the means is by understanding who that God is. And when you understand who God is, when you study theology, your mind will explode in awe and wonder. And I always tell my theology students, if theology doesn't cause you to be humble, you're doing it wrong. It should humble you because you see the beauty and grandeur and splendor and incomprehensibility of God. And if it doesn't crush you and say, oh my goodness, I really don't know much of anything. I think we're doing it wrong. It should transform us the way we live. Well, that's enough of that. Let me conclude. And I'll conclude very simply. Number one, God's word is authoritative. And we must rely upon God's word for our answers. That's where we, that's where we go to. It doesn't mean we can't trust or we can't um, glean from tradition or other people or other teachers or things like that. But God's word is our final authority. Second, our belief about God will be displayed in the way we live. You will live out what you believe because out of the heart the mouth speaks. This man had a wicked heart and so he wanted to hate his neighbor. Our belief about God will be reflected in the way we live out our lives. And finally this, folks. Grace is a necessity. See, the law effectively reveals our need for grace. Do you want to be saved by the law? Then it's really simple. Let me tell you how to do it. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you can do that 24-7 for the re- from, uh, and if you've already failed on it, sorry, you need grace. But if you haven't, keep doing it until the day you die. And for all of us here who have fallen short of that grace, that is, Christ died for your sins and my sins. He bore the penalty of, of sin's consequences. He bore sin's penalty in his body on the tree. He took our sin upon himself. And because he fulfilled the law righteously, he credits his righteousness to our account and our sin is credited to his account and so now we by grace are the righteousness of God not because of anything that we've done or any merit of our own but because our righteousness is in heaven with Jesus Christ so do you want to be right before God you need grace because you've already failed you've already sinned against a holy God and there will be consequences, but Jesus took those consequences and he has imparted his life to you. And so with that, I'll conclude um, that if you desire to know more about grace, 
and Jesus Christ taking your sacrifice, I would love to talk with you. I'll talk with you after church. Um, just meet me out front or come down to the, to the pew and, and we'll talk. And we'll talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And uh, we can introduce you to uh, the one who's loved you beyond all things. So with that, let's stand. Let's uh, have just a, a moment of quiet reflection, thinking about these things that God has spoken. Spend a few moments in reflection and then we will... Uh, We'll sing our song. Let's ask God to reveal these truths to us. Now let us sing this great song of promise and hope.